Welcome back. I hope that everyone had a chance to enjoy some refreshments and to chit-chat with some of the exhibitors in our wonderful showcase, the interactive showcase, which has been put together by Heijin Chung, who is another Mellon postdoctoral fellow here and will be here again next year. So please connect with her out there as well to talk about her work. My name is Amaranth Borsk, as you know. I'll be introducing the theme and the panelists for our second event of Unbound today. Our three panelists come from three quite different backgrounds. Uh, one is a publisher, one is a theorist scholar, one is a book artist and writer. But they're united by their concern and their interest in the changing shape of books and our interaction with them. They're interested in unstable platforms, and they, I think, all desire to keep books with us for the duration, but they're approaching this concern from different angles. I'll introduce them all in advance and uh, in the order in which they will appear. Gita Manaktala is editorial director of the MIT Press, a publisher of cutting-edge scholarship in the sciences, humanities, and social sciences. She has worn many hats at the press, as a publicist, a promotion manager, and a manager of digital projects. Gita helped to develop CISnet, an online collection of the press's computer and information sciences titles, and eBooks at the MIT Press, an online bookstore. She's going to present her thoughts today and some provocations on the state of scholarly publishing in the face of eBooks. Bob Stein has continually, has continually sought ways to supplement the media that we consume. He founded the Criterion Collection in 1984, which provides commentary and other ancillary materials along with films. I'm sure you're familiar with it. He also founded the Voyager Company in 1989, which published the first commercial CD-ROMs, including the CD companion to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park. In 2004, with a, a MacArthur Grant, he founded the Institute for the Future of the Book, a think tank for exploring many of the questions being raised here today. And now he's working on Social Book, which he'll share with us this afternoon, uh, an interesting platform that pertains to some of the themes raised during our first panel. And our third presenter will be Christian Book, whose work many of you were introduced to last night. He's the author of Crystallography and Eunoia, and he's earned accolades for his virtuoso performances of sound poetry by both historic and contemporary writers. He has created a book that spans a recombinant text on the faces of a giant Rubik's Cube, a book made out of Legos, and other remarkable book objects. He's going to share his work in progress, the Xenotext, which I see as a work intended, like much conceptual writing, to simultaneously provoke and delight the reader, who is at least willing to meet the work halfway. Please welcome our panelists. Good afternoon. It's really a pleasure to be here today. Um, please let me know if you have any trouble hearing me. And thank you for the nice introduction, Amaranth. Um, I'm currently the MIT Press's um, editorial director. Um, and in, uh, instead of speculating on the future of the iconic object of the book, 
or the book format, um, I want to talk a little bit about um, some larger issues that this question, this very interesting question, raises for scholarly publishers and, scho and the scholarly publishing enterprise. Um, some of the most important changes in publishing that we've seen um, have to do uh, with a, a huge shift in the way that we read. Um, so that's what I'm going to talk about today. Um, how we publish and provide value to our readers now um, is different than it used to be in the, uh, the golden age of the physical book, which I think is in transition um, at this point. The shifts that I want to talk about today are first the shift from relatively stable knowledge and stable content uh, embodied in the codex to more dynamic forms of knowledge and content uh, that we see online and in electronic media. The second major shift that's affecting us as a scholarly publisher is a shift from reading to a broader bandwidth understanding of attention. And the third shift is from the traditional forms of academic peer review, which are important in scholarly publishing, um, to facilitated networks of review that we are now using um, to add value to what we publish, to evaluate it, and to provide useful feedback to authors uh, looking to revise their work. Each of these shifts requires us to rethink how we allocate our time and talent as a publisher. And each of these shifts, uh, we believe, respects the ongoing disruptive technology trends. And most important, each of these shifts gives us the opportunity to make the book or journal or publication experience better for our authors and also to the broader community of readers and scholars and researchers. The idea that I want to leave you with today is that great editors and great editorship are the key to getting the most value from these uh, epic shifts in our landscape. And this is my major concern as an editorial director, is to make sure that our editors and our processes understand the importance of these shifts, of dynamic content, of capturing attention, and of managing multiple peer networks in the service of uh, adding value. Now the job of a scholarly publisher, as you probably know, is to identify and select work that deserves to persist over time. Okay, this is not as easy as it sounds. Um, we live in a kind of wiki, many of us, many of the authors that we work with live in a wiki world of continuous updates and, and very dynamic uh, knowledge. They live in a world in which Ideas move quickly. Um, the transmission of results, results and methods um, and propositions is very fast. Uh, knowledge is produced quickly, assimilated quickly. It's highly collaborate, collaborative. And collaboration really feeds innovation in this kind of environment. Speed is very important in this kind of environment. Um, these kinds of changes really do question, uh, challenge the relevance of traditional formats, including the peer-reviewed book and the peer-reviewed journal. So what are we going to do about that? I think that um, my editors really straddle two worlds right now. Uh, one world is the world in which the polished jewel 
of scholarship is the monograph. That's extensively peer-reviewed, it's extensively revised, it's edited, and it's meant to last for a long time, if not forever. Um, th these are the ideas that we've encircled, identified as important, identified as deserving of persistence, the physical persistence of the print book in which we still have a large investment um, and deserving of preservation in digital formats as well. The other world that they live in is this more dynamic world that I'm describing in which our authors, um, who are, include humanists and scientists, um, live. And this is the world of um, fast-moving ideas, digital content, rapid idea generation, uh, collaboration, multi-authored projects. So how do they bridge the difference between these two? I think Every editor needs to understand the interactions of these two worlds, needs to understand uh, why we need both and how they can complement one another. Um, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts about that. The second point I mentioned is a shift from reading to the broader bandwidth of attention. Um, nobody here needs to be told that we live in a world of too much information. Um, as readers, this is something of a problem because we need to be able to trust that uh, where we put our attention is, uh, you know, we have to make decisions about where to put our attention. Um, I think reading is alive and well, but uh, it's a challenge to know that what we're reading is high quality, and, that, and it's a challenge to find um, not only what we're specifically looking for, but what we might not specifically be looking for, but would benefit from if someone suggested it to us. Um, so in a search and discover environment, that's not as easy as, uh, as it used to be in, when we had a lot of bookstores to browse, for example. Okay, so um, I think in this kind of environment of too much attention, um, you know, the problems for readers, I think, are manageable. Um, but implicit in the reading, reading experience is that somebody is behind the scenes is helping you make those decisions. Somebody is... Um, uh, publishing content that is high quality, um, that is worth paying attention to. And, uh, you know, in our world, we call those people editors. Um, the, the term of art these days is curators, but in publishing, they're called editors. Um, I think the problem of too much information is, is an even bigger problem for authors than it is for readers, okay? Because authors have to uh, compete in this environment for the attention of readers who have a lot of claims on their time already. Um, and again, it's editors who are going to help them uh, uh, reach this wider audience through um, uh, understanding the dyna dynamics of attention, understanding what kind of writing is clear and consequential and meaningful to readers, and helping writers uh, edit their work accordingly. The third shift um, that I mentioned from traditional academic peer review to more open forms of review um, and validation. Um, I don't know if how many people are aware of this, but traditional peer review is usually blind peer review that's conducted by scholarly publishers to determine the quality of works under consideration and to offer useful advice to the authors on how to revise and edit their work. Um, 
This is only one of the ways in which peer review is happening these days because um, as, as versions of work um, become available digitally before publication and scholars share their work among their own peer networks, there's an opportunity to have those conversations earlier with people who really um, are important to you as an author, if you're an author. And I think um, as publishers, we are figuring out how to, um, how to accommodate that um, development and how to um, make it complement our own types of peer review. And I think they, they can be very complementary. Um, peer review now uh, serves a lot of different purposes. It can be crowdsourced. Or, uh, or traditional, it can be blind or open. Um, the important thing is to realize that these things are not mutually exclusive and they can be used together to, uh, to improve work and establish its quality. Okay, so I think um, it, once again that the people who are, who are really well positioned to negotiate these changes our editors, because this is what they do. And in a world of too much information, we really need these types of skills. So I think if we manage our publishing processes well, um, we can ensure that the book in multiple formats will have a future and that the reading experience um, will be a good one. Thank you. Um, for, for those of you who are new to this subject, that was a brilliant, brilliant, insightful talk by a publisher. Maybe the sharpest one I've almost ever heard. I strongly recommend people go back and watch that again um, in the archives of this conference. It was just a really incisive statement of the, of the issues in front of us. Uh, so... Uh, Amazingly enough, over 30 years ago, I got interested in electronic publishing. I spent the first 20 years trying to expand the notion of the page to include audio and video. And then the last eight or nine years, I know that doesn't quite, there's more years involved, but uh, trying to uh, understand what happens when you put a text into a dynamic network. And what we started to discover was that a book becomes a place. A book becomes a place where readers and sometimes authors can congregate in the margin. And what I'm going to show you in the little bit of time I have is the sort of beginning of a platform that my colleagues and I are building, which we think can be the first truly post-print publishing platform. I, I know that Amazon and Apple and Google and others sell electronic books on a platform but in, in almost every regard, if you look at the platforms that they have designed, they completely copy the ecosystem of print. And the idea that people are to, going to be together in, in, inside of books is just not in those platforms at all. And we've started from a very different perspective. Um, so... It's called Social Book, and I'm going to show you a particular use in a classroom in, in New York. This, is, this is, has been in beta for several months now. Anybody in this audience who's intrigued afterwards can write me an email and we'll let you in. Um, 
This is a high school class. They're reading Don Quixote together in Spanish, obviously, not obviously, but they're reading it in Spanish. Um, there are 11 students in the class. There's a teacher, and my avatar is here because they let me uh, watch over their shoulder. And one of the fantastic advantages of having books in browsers, and everything we're doing is in the browser, is that if the browser happens to be Google, it offers to translate. Um, and by the way, the tra Spanish translation is pretty good. I've been experimenting a lot with Japanese colleagues, and it's not quite there yet. But, but, it is, but it, the Spanish is absolutely good enough to, to break down the language barrier, uh, at least for work purposes. Um, anyway, uh, so when you see highlighted text here, that means somebody has selected that text and put a comment there. Uh, this student has selected this text down here. You can read the excerpt here. And Vera has responded to him. And then Emily and Gabby and Thomas and Sol have all responded to Vera. Uh, Sol started a separate thread in response to Player Z. If I come in here and select some of the same text, I can write a note. And then you'll notice that the text is now sort of darker here, uh, meaning that more than one person has selected some of that text to comment on. And you now see two avatars. There's my, my excerpt, my comment. I can switch to the other one like so. Uh, well, all, all I've shown you so far is that we've pretty, done a pretty good job of making it possible to have a threaded conversation that's tied to specific bits of text. The response in this class has been uh, remarkable. Uh, the, everybody is really happy. The, one of the things the teachers first said was that it's completely broken down the boundaries of the classroom, that the conversation which uh, is happening in class uh, continues in the margin. The kids come back into class the next day, and they, keep refer, they start referring to what each other has written in the margin. Uh, secondly, uh, no more quizzes, no more papers. It's all in the book. The subject of the study is the place where the work is taking place, and the teacher has an exquisite understanding of each student's understanding. And the, the idea that uh, the, the, there's a famous expression by a computer scientist named Alan Kay that point of view is worth 80 IQ points. You can, you can see in these discussions that it's not simply additive having multiple points of view. I'm not sure it's exponential, but it's definitely more than additive, because you can see ideas uh, bouncing around off each, uh, off each person and people coming to new insights that they wouldn't have come to if they had been on their own. The third thing she said, which I found interesting, was that the weaker students, the ones who might have just sort of passed, you know, sort of passed something off as done and gotten a C or a D on a, on a quiz or a paper, don't do that here because, in fact, they're, it's not simply peer pressure, but they, they're engaged in a way that they're not uh, if they're by themselves. 
So when you have a group like this where everybody knows each other, there's a very, very high signal-to-noise ratio. Everybody's actually, they know each other, they're interested in what each other have to say. This is different than on a blog or in a public space where there's a huge amount of noise and finding the things that are valuable is difficult. But it's quite possible there is wisdom in the crowd. So we've made it possible to look at things from both perspectives. I'm going to have to go into a different uh, book. Um, so this is a, uh, it's an article by Cory Doctorow which I'm reading by myself. It's, and uh, these are my, my, my comments that I left here from myself. In this beta right now, we don't have enough people reading anything separately. So I made up sort of a fantasy reading group league of people I'd like to read with. And I made accounts for each of those people. <laughs> so if, if I switch to the community tab, uh, you now see comments <laughs> by... And so notice as I, as I scroll down here, you'll see the, uh, the highlights will change according to who's, who's visible, right? And if I, if I see a note by, by, by Susan Sontag that's interesting to me, and if she were only alive, um, I, I could actually reply to her right here. I, 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 I love that you're laughing and I appreciate the humor, but, but I also want you to understand the, 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 the power here in the fact that we found a way to give people both the power of the small group where you know each other and access to the broader conversation. You'll be able to, to rate these and then sort by, by, by rating, but also it'll be possible for a professor here at MIT whose class is, is reading something, and she knows that a colleague of hers you know, at berkeley.edu is assigning the same book. They'll be able to match up their two classes uh, directly through the community tab. Now, there are two tabs you don't see yet. One is called, one is called glosses. Uh, we realized that if somebody were to mark up an entire book and that person happened to be an expert, there might be a huge amount of value in, their being, in her being able to export her markup, which in effect is a gloss, in, in, a, in a form that will let other people import it. To go to one of uh, Gita's comments about the, uh, the explosion of stuff that we need to deal with, people see, people see what I'm doing and they say, are you crazy? How do you think we're possibly going to spend this kind of time reading this closely? And my, art, my answer is that I think we're going to f find that we read a small number of things much more carefully, and we're going to read everything else. We're going to learn how to scan and skim. And having an intelligent person's gloss is going to be the key to skimming complex works, right? I mean, I, I really see the day when MIT Press, when every single book at MIT Press comes with multiple glosses so that you can spend two or three hours with a 400-page monograph where somebody says to you, here are the 87 passages I think are really important. Here's why I think they're important. And it's not a digest. You're not in a spark note. You're actually in the original text. So if a passage is actually particularly relevant to you, you can go backwards and forwards and stay with it. Uh, the fourth tab is... Uh, 
where the author, the editor, the publisher can communicate directly with the, the, the readers. Whether it's to announce that the author is going to do a live reading next Thursday inside the book where you can ask questions, or to say for $500 the author will show up in your reading group next month, or to announce new glosses, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the, I mean, to think about being able to buy a math text that comes with, uh, you know, 20 hours of live one-to-one -one tutoring uh, for your child. Uh, we're learning that potentially a book isn't just a place. A book is becoming a marketplace uh, where people with needs can be combined with people who have uh, the ability to satisfy those. Uh, the this will well, let me let me let me explain this. Um, so I would show this to people, and they would say, "Okay, we get it, Bob. Now you're into social reading." And I would say, "Well, yeah." And they would say, "But we don't care about social reading. What we care about is collaborative writing." And I would get very defensive, and I'd say, "Okay, look, Google Docs, wikis, they let everybody change the text, but they're terrible." at letting you see the conversation that generated the, the, the surface that, that, that is still there, you know, the, 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 the last version. We're working at the other end of the problem. And then one day I had to write a paper and I put the, a draft of the paper into social book for my colleagues to comment on. After several days, they had marked it up. They had rewritten several paragraphs, left them as comments. I opened up pages next to a social book. I rewrote the paper. I uploaded a new version. They marked it up again. And I realized that right now, collectively, that the best we've got sort of for collaborative effort, if you're willing to define collaborative effort as everybody having input, not everybody necessarily being able to write, that a, a, a place like social book plus a word processor works. But then the, sort of, then the more interesting thing happened, which was one day, I, um, uh, hold on, uh, there it is, no, not there, <laughs> sorry, uh, Am I in the wrong place? What am I, what's happened here? Sorry, I'm completely confused. This is terrible. I think I must have, I think I took down a doc. Oh, here it is. Redesign. It's over there. It's not usually in the corner. Um, spatial data management, you know, Nick, Nick Negroponte. Um, sorry. So anyway, so one day I, I, I took an email short email that one of the designers wrote me, four paragraphs. And I put the email into social book because I knew it had to be discussed by these three people. And you know how at the end of a day with a complicated email, 
right? Some people insert their comments at the beginning, some in the middle, some at the end. Gee, did Susie write that before she saw Jeff's comment or after Jeff's comment? You spend increasingly more of your time unpacking the thread than thinking about the actual content. So here, so this was a, I just selected this text. I wrote this comment in response to it. Marina wrote back to me. Lawrence wrote to Marina. I wrote back to Lawrence. At the end of a couple of hours, we pretty much had hashed it out. We didn't spend any time unpacking the thread. We just spent our time thinking about the problem. Since that day, it was several months ago, we haven't used email in-house. So this was really interesting to me because I, we didn't have any intention of reinventing email and I was so I started thinking what, what what did we do that made this so useful and I actually took this email or another one and I put it into Google Docs and I tried to recreate our conversation and it was painfully impossible and I realized that what is that Google Docs wikis word processors what they've done is they've taken so they, they've taken word processors and they've grafted socially awkwardly on top of them on the other hand things like Kindle you know with, with the ability to know that 500 people have have highlighted the same passage which isn't useless but it's not incredibly useful either um, what they did was they took a simple reader and they grafted a little bit of social on top of it we went at the problem quite differently. For us, social is not a pizza topping. It's not an add-on. We think it's the foundational cornerstone of reading and writing going forth into the future. So we built a platform right from the bottom of the data structure up that assumes that people are in these documents together. And I, I think what what's happened... Um, let me see if I can find this. I never can decide if I want to show this or not. Um, so I, I think that when, when, when humans started putting, started making books, the reason why they did it was they, they, they had this instinct that they wanted to move ideas around time and space, and books turned out to be a fantastic way to do that. But when they did that, they separated out these two functions, reading and writing. And some of us became readers, some of us became writers. Some of us were both, but they were very separate functions. What's happening as we're putting reading and writing back into, not back into, but as we, as we put it into the a dynamic digital network, there's a, a, a blurring is taking, is taking effect. And if I do this Venn diagram, I think what's, what's in the middle there is thinking. Because what we're, what we're discovering when we read inside of not just social book, I mean, this happens to me now in, 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 in Kindle, uh, where I'm part of an experiment where all of my Kindle notes are, are made public to a group of people. Um, I am reading so differently now that I can mark up documents and have knowledge that my markup is available to others now and will be 20 years from now. I just read the Hunger Games trilogy and was completely conscious the entire time as I was putting extensive notes into it that my granddaughter Penelope in 10 years is going to read the Hunger Games and she'll have the option to read her, you know, to read her grandfather's notes from today as, as she reads it. 
I think that what Social Book is pointing at is an emergent class, and we're, 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 we're not inventing this, we're not the only ones. I think a lot of us are coming at this from different directions. But I think that what we're starting to see is the emergence of, for lack of a better term right now, thinking processors. We're making places for people to think. The, the students at Dalton, those of us who are reading in, in Social Book and some other places, we are spending our time with, the, with these texts really wrestling with the content and the ideas in ways that no other, no other platform has let us do it quite as, as well or uh, with as much impact and meaning as we're starting to see. And I think that we're going to see a huge change over the next decade or so as these kinds of, as, the, as these, these uh, facilities become uh, elaborated and, and perfected. Um, anybody who'd like to play with Social Book, just send an email to me at futureofthebook at gmail. Thank you very much. Oh, can, oh wait a minute. I actually, I, 30 seconds more. I just have to show you something cool. Um, uh, future of the book at Gmail. Um, so, Social Book basically imports uh, um, EPUBs, but we're, we're making it this easy. This is an article for Scientific American. This is totally live. There's nothing canned or cached on my machine. Um, so, this is an article. I'm just clicking upload to Social Book. Demo. For MIT, I would put somebody's email address in here. I can put as many as I want. I would write a note inviting you. I click Create Group. Whoever I sent the email to would get an invitation. On the fly, Social Book scraped that page and put that article into a form where it's just ready to go and I can start commenting in it. I'm going to talk to you for the next uh, 15 minutes or so about uh, my current uh, uh, project in progress, uh, work entitled The Xenotext. Uh, my talk is uh, sufficiently pretentious enough to have a, an epigraph. Uh, this uh, from F.T. Marinetti, uh, who writes in the Technical Manifesto of Futures Literature that there is also a microbe essential to the vitality of art. And I guess I'd like to talk to you a little bit about this microbe. The Xenotext is a kind of experiment, a literary exercise that explores the aesthetic potential of genetics in the modern milieu, doing so in order to make literal the renowned aphorism of William S. Burroughs, who has declared that the word is now a virus. My experiment proposes to address some of the sociological implications of biotechnology by manufacturing a xenotext, a beautiful, anomalous poem whose alien words might subsist like a harmless parasite inside the cell of another life form. 
Now, futurists have already begun to speculate that even now we might store data by encoding textual information into genetic nucleotides, thereby creating messages made from DNA, messages that we can then implant like genes inside cells where such data might persist undamaged and unaltered through myriad cycles of mitosis, all the while preserved for recovery and decoding. Genetics has thus endowed biology with a possible literary use, granting every geneticist the power to become a poet in the medium of life. Now, I've composed my own example of living poetry so that when translated into a gene and then integrated into the cell, the text nevertheless gets expressed by the organism, which in response to this grafted genetic sequence begins to manufacture a viable benign protein one that, according to the original chemical alphabet, is itself yet another text. I am, in effect, engineering a primitive bacterium so that it becomes not only a durable archive for storing a poem, but also a usable machine for writing a poem in response. This is the protagonist of the project, Dinococcus radiodurans. This is the proposed symbiote for my xenotext, in part because this extremophile can repair its own DNA so quickly that the germ resists mutation. It's kind of an evolutionary dead end. It can survive extremes of heat and cold, even desiccation. You can scorch it, freeze it, wither it, and still it endures. Uh, it can survive exposure to the vacuum of outer space. It can even withstand dosages of gamma rays 1,000 times more lethal than the dosage needed to obliterate a human being. A germ with this kind of radio resistance might conceivably survive nuclear warfare, and some biologists have even suggested that an ancestor of this organism must have had at least some exposure to an extraterrestrial environment in order to have acquired these environmental immunities. Now, I apologize for this uh, crash course in genetics, um, <laughs> and I certainly apologize to the scientists in the audience for my dilettantishness. Um, Writing the xenotext requires uh, that I create a chemical alphabet of codons, of genetic triplets, made by permuting the four nucleotides in DNA. Uh, adenine, cytosine, guanine, and thymine are the nucleobases that contain the information-bearing content of DNA. Uh, each of these codons, these three-letter words, uh, is interpreted as an instruction for creating one of 20 amino acids used to make a protein. Now, I can assign each amino acid to a given letter of the alphabet, and by stringing these codons together, I can create chemical messages enciphered as sequences of DNA. Now, because there exists a codependent biochemical relationship between any preliminary DNA sequence and its resulting messenger RNA sequence, which creates the string of amino acids in the protein, my two poems must likewise be bijectively codependent in order for this project to work. So just as adenine and thymine are mutually encipher each other on the strand of DNA, uh, so also do cytosine and guanine uh, mutually encipher each other with uh, the uh, uh, molecule uracil standing in for thymine during the process of transcription. Uh, my two poems have to actually mimic uh, this relationship uh, biochemically. Now this uh, slide depicts a sample strand of DNA uh, coiled into a helix, and uh, this is a standard kind of picture of the molecule. Uh, the rungs of the ladder consist of codependent nucleotides, and you'll notice that on one side uh, of the ladder, uh, A is always paired with T, and C is always paired with G. And uh, typically the information is read from what is called the five prime end to the three prime end of that DNA sequence. Uh, so I will ask you to look at the uh, left-hand side of the sequence in this uh, unraveled DNA molecule. 
when uh, messenger RNA uh, transcription occurs, the sample strand of DNA here untwists and the bonds between the codependent nucleotides are broken, exposing uh, each of the bases. And the strand on the far left is the encoding sequence in this case, and the strand on the far right is the template sequence. The strand in the middle is the transcription sequence of messenger RNA, which uses the template strand to create a copy of the encoding strand. Except that in this case, wherever you might expect to see a T in the DNA, you'll get a U in the messenger RNA. And the messenger RNA fragment eventually breaks away from this strand of DNA and then travels to a structure in the cell called a ribosome where the protein is manufactured. Uh, the ribosome is kind of like the factory in the cell, and it reads each of the codons, each of the three-letter triplets in the DNA, interpreting each of these uh, three-letter words as an instruction for building a specific amino acid, each of which gets strung together into a molecular sequence like a series of charms on a chain of jewelry, thereby creating a strand of protein, a strand that then undergoes a process of folding and bending due to the electrochemical forces within uh, the molecule, torquing the protein into a conformation that requires the lowest amount of energy to sustain. And the surface contour of this folded strand determines the kind of biochemical interaction that the protein can perform with other enzymes in the cell. Uh, in effect, uh, the important thing to take away from this is that there is this kind of codependent relationship between uh, the DNA sequence and the resulting uh, amino acid sequence. I'll give you an example here of a, a sample cipher. This is not what I actually used uh, in the course of the creation of my poem, but I hope it's illustrative. I'm going to try and explain how I have to write these two poems. Let us imagine pairing off all the letters of the alphabet so that they are mutually assigned to each other, knowing that there exist seven billion nine hundred and five excuse me seven trillion nine hundred and five billion eight hundred and fifty three million five hundred and eighty thousand six hundred and twenty five different ways of enciphering the alphabet according to this one constraint alone now uh, there's effectively about eight trillion ways of doing this choose a cipher from this set one you think that might uh, actually produce interesting results then write an eloquent poem such that if we replace every single letter with its counterpart from our chosen cipher we get yet another eloquent poem now, no poet in the history of poetics has ever actually imagined creating two texts that mutually encipher each other in this way. And I plan to integrate my encoded text into the genetic code of the cell so that during transcription, the messenger RNA in the cell might translate my string of codons into the required commands for manufacturing a correspondent series of amino acids. Except that through this act of biochemical translation, this series of amino acids must also encipher a totally variant poem. I am trying, in effect, to design a biological cryptogram that consists of a meaningful text that can in turn be deciphered into yet another meaningful text. So for example, in this picture, the letter E might be enciphered by a preliminary template codon CCG, which uh, gets transcribed by the cell into its correlative RNA codon GGC. And this codon represents the instruction for creating the amino acid glycine, which might in turn be assigned to the letter L. The letters E and L are thus mutually correlated to each other by this codependent biochemical relationship between the DNA sequence and the RNA sequence, and hence the letter L must be represented by the preliminary template codon GGC, which gets transcribed by the cell into its correlative RNA codon CCG, the given codon here for E. And this codon represents the instruction for creating the amino acid proline. It just so happens that glycine and proline have these mutually correlated codons. Uh, all the letters of the alphabet must follow this constraint of codependent encipherment for the project to work. I hope that this uh, chart is illustrative. You can see the way in which if I wrote the word cell, the organism in this case would respond by writing the word glee, and here the letters L and E are mutually correlated with each other.
Now, to compose such a poem, I've had to teach myself a whole bunch of new tricks. Uh, I've had to design a piece of homespun software that permits me to input a cipher into a computer, which might then search through the entirety of the English lexicon, outputting all the words that mutually encipher each other according to my requisite constraint. And I've experimented with all kinds of heuristics, correlating letters that have, for example, equivalent recurrence in texts or equivalent positioning in words. And I've even explored codes that force the inclusion of a particular vocabulary. And here we've got the piece of software, at least the component part, that uh, does all this hard work for me. Uh, obviously, I would not be assigning, say, the letter A to the letter Z uh, and Z to A because I would eliminate probably many of the words in the language that actually contain the, the letter A. So I, I might, for example, try to equate E and T with each other and I and N with each other because these pairs of letters have almost congruent frequency in the language. Uh, here I've given you a list of the most commonly occurring letters in the order in which they appear. I might equate A and H with each other because they often appear as the second letter in a word. They're the most commonly occurring second letters in words. And I might equate S and D with each other because they often appear at the end of a word. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying my best to come up with a, a set of heuristics for producing a relatively large vocabulary. And I have learned from experience, however, that even after improving the odds of generating a usable lexicon, any attempt to write, say, the rival of Hamlet has so far proven very difficult. Here's uh, one of the results uh, for this particular uh, cipher. Um, we're, off to <laughs> we're off to a bad start here, right? <laughs> With uh, a cipher that you would think would uh, be functional. Obviously, the word the turns out, turns out to be very difficult to actually encipher into this uh, process. Uh, because by simply assigning the two most commonly occurring letters to each other, I restrict myself then to having to use the word the and eat as the corresponding words. Wherever I use the word the, the organism has to use the word eat and vice versa. Now, I have run hundreds of experiments with my software, and I've, I've yet to find a vocabulary more than 786 entries. And most of the results include only uh, a disconsolate array of monosyllabic words, most shorter than five letters. And I found that shorter deictic words, really useful words like the and 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 of and in, uh, all required for coherent syntactic discourse do not encode very easily into any of these lexicons. And often a very common usable word might translate into a very exotic but useless word. And any word of more than six letters is very rare. Uh, despite the fact that there are eight trillion possible ciphers, this one constraint of producing these mutually encoded words has turned out to be very difficult to fulfill. And after nearly four years of failure in trying to write two intelligible texts according to this very burdensome constraint, I have finally made the prerequisite breakthrough for my project. And here are the, uh, the two poems with the accompanying cipher. Uh, the poem on the left is the one that I would implant into the genome of the organism. And I'll read it to you. It, it begins, Any style of life is prim. Oh, stay, my lyre, with wily ploys, moan the riff, the riff of any tune aloud, moan now my fate, in fate we rely. My myth now is the word, the word of life. Now, the organism would actually read that gene sequence and produce a protein in response expressing uh, that particular gene, and uh, that particular protein would, in fact, encipher this following answer. The fairy is rosy of glow, in fate we rely. Moan more grief with any loss, any loss is the achy trick. With him we stay, oh stay my lyre, we wean him of any milk, 
any milk is rosy. Now, you might want to uh, look carefully. You'll note that wherever you see the letter A, for example, in the poem on the left, you'll see the letter T in the poem on the right, and vice versa. Wherever a T appears in my poem, an A appears in the poem written by the organism. You'll note uh, that every single letter has that mutual correlation with each other uh, throughout the entire work. This is why the poem was so difficult to compose. Now, the text on the left is, I think, written by me as a kind of masculine assertion about the aesthetic creation of life. While the text on the right is written by the microbe, I think, as a kind of feminine refutation about the woebegone absence of life. And to me, the two poems kind of resemble abbreviated Petrarchan sonnets. They are 14-line poems. Uh, in dialogue with each other, I wanted to find two poems that were in dialogue with each other. And they're much like poems written in the elegiac pastoral tradition of the herd boy answered by the nymphette. Uh, Moreover, the protein that encyphers the poem by the microbe uh, is going to be chemically tagged so as to make the cell glow red in the dark. So it's immediately evident that the poet uh, is being written by the organism. So the microbe is, in effect, uh, going to fluoresce rubescently in a fey way that embodies the rosiness attributed to the fairy described within the content of the poem itself. This chart is merely uh, designed to intimidate you with my vast <laughs> intelligence. Um, I, I had to explore numerous options for enciphering the poem as a sequence of amino acids since the sequence uh, needed to fold up viably into a working protein. This is the next constraint. Is that once I have these two poems, I now have to figure out how to encipher them as a protein in a way that will cause the protein to fold up uh, and remain viable within the cell. Now, I did statistical analyses of various ciphers, determining their likelihood of surviving within the organism, and I narrowed my candidates down to about a dozen ranked options. And then I uh, submitted these candidate proteins to a supercomputer, which took about six weeks to simulate two femtoseconds of folding for each of the proteins. I also submitted a 13th wildcard candidate, just out of curiosity. And uh, while my predict predicted contenders ranked very highly, I uh, actually had them all ranked. And it, as it turned out, uh, I was correct in assuming that uh, uh, the, the best ones would, in fact, be ranked highly. Uh, I was some somewhat surprised to discover that the wild card, Protein 13, turned out to be the best one. So this chart depicts the cipher used to encode my poem into that specific sequence of amino acids. Uh, this image depicts the sequence of DNA codons used to generate protein 13 within the cell. Uh, each codon is assigned to a letter of the alphabet, so that, for example, ACG is the letter A, and GTG is the letter N, and ATA is the letter Y, and AAG is a space. So the first four codons at the top left uh, represent the word any plus a space. And the full sequence enciphers my poem about the aesthetic creation of life, the, the poem that I would insert into the genetic uh, material of the organism. Now, this image depicts the sequence of amino acids encoding the poem written by the microbe in response to my text. And each amino acid is conventionally represented by a letter of the alphabet. So that, for example, T is threonine, V is valine, I is isoleucine, S is serine, etc. And in this case, the first four letters of the sequence encipher the word the plus a space. And in this case, the sequence encodes the poem written by the microbe in response to my implanted text. This is the image of the backbone of the resulting protein after two femtoseconds of folding. Uh, it effectively depicts what the poem is expected to look like at the atomic level in the cell. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of native structure. I actually, uh, during this first uh, trial, tried to make the protein as soluble as possible. And uh, consequently, uh, it uh, doesn't have a great deal of secondary structure. There's a few little helices in it. Uh, 
This image depicts the atomic structure of the protein. Uh, it is, in effect, a, the molecular embodiment of the xenotext, a kind of sculptural translation of the poem itself. And I have, in fact, built a model of this protein out of toy molecules uh, for exhibit in an art gallery. And uh, here is the actual uh, exhibit of uh, protein, in protein 13 installed uh, at the Berry Art Gallery in Manchester for display during the text festival um, last April. Uh, on March 31st uh, last year, uh, 2011, I received confirmation from the laboratory at the University of Calgary that my poetic cipher, gene XP13, had in fact caused E. coli to fluoresce red in our test runs on that particular organism. I wanted to try it out and make sure that it would work, meaning that when implanted in the genome of this bacterium, my poem beginning, Any Style of Life is Prim, did in fact cause the bacterium to write in response its own poem beginning, The Fairy is Rosy of Glow. Hence, I was the first poet in the history of literature to engineer a bacterium so that it could write a poem. The uh, lab went on to isolate the resulting protein in order to confirm that uh, my molecule protein 13 was indeed folding according to our projections and simulations. And so far as we could tell, the poem was functioning without adverse effects upon the cell. And the lab then went on to spend the next two months uh, analyzing the results in, in an attempt to characterize the protein, uh, whereupon I would be in the meantime, trying to figure out how to get it into the actual target organism, the extremophile Dinococcus radiodurans. And here you actually see uh, the uh, bacterium fluorescing under the microscope. Well, uh, after reaching this particular milestone, uh, I received a lot of worldwide attention from the media. Uh, I was uh, featured prominently in The Guardian. Uh, I was interviewed on BBC World. Uh, about 40 million people in the world, I guess, now knew about uh, the Xenotext. Uh, I was even interviewed by New Scientist magazine, uh, re-interviewed re by Nature magazine. So I, I enjoyed a lot of attention for about six weeks of fanfare uh, before I got word from the lab that despite all indications, uh, the results of later tests suggested that protein 13 was only half as massive as expected. Uh, that this is bad news. Uh, and given that the poem was equal in size to the fluorescent tag, which E. coli expressed, all these results suggested that the organism was either censoring my poem before expression or destroying it after expression. I had not engineered the first uh, microbial writer. Uh, instead, I had engineered the first microbial critic. And I had thus created a conundrum for the scientists who could not account for this problem uh, since I had done everything correctly and the gene uh, should have worked, given that my custom design of the tag functioned properly. And the scientists were very impressed that, you know, I'm, I'm a doctorate in English. I'm an English major. And uh, nevertheless got uh, this uh, protein synthesis uh, to work properly, even though graduate students uh, don't get their projects to work the first time. So they were quite pleased with me. Uh, now they're interested because it didn't work. Uh, but I would have to figure out on my own what went wrong, and I'd have to, in effect, re redesign uh, the protein in order to figure out how to make it more stable within the organism. And I have to say, I was working on this project during my sabbatical, so at this point now, I felt like my sabbatical was entirely squandered. <laughs> well, uh, despite this setback, I've spent the last eight months or so uh, attempting to re-encipher the poem so that it might have a better chance of surviving in the organism. And even though my first draft of Protein 13 was the most appealing candidate based on the methods used to create it, I've gone back to the drawing board uh, and entirely redesigning the sequence from the ground up, one amino acid at a time. And I've managed to figure out how to improve its folding profile uh, significantly. I think I've nearly tripled its stability, thereby producing candidates that look much more beautiful. And in this case here, this has got a lot of secondary structure to it. It looks like something you might find in a textbook. Uh, it's, a, it's a much prettier version of the poem. Uh, 
now I just have to rebuild the gen genetic sequence and uh, do some more test runs. I should note that uh, uh, it's currently uh, going through a second uh, revision. Uh, I submitted uh, the gene sequence for manufacturer, and we actually uh, uh, inserted it into uh, uh, the bacterium. And yet again, it fluoresced beautifully, and we thought, great, we've succeeded. And then uh, once we've characterized the protein, discovered that it was half as massive as it should be, and that, of course, the uh, organism was continuing to destroy uh, the poem. Uh, so I actually am currently working on a third candidate, uh, uh, yet one more, and it's even more beautiful than this one, <laughs> even more tightly configured. Uh, uh, but uh, I'm right now trying, to, I guess, to contend with the uh, threat of failure on this project. Uh, uh, the manuscript is going very well, of course, but the, the uh, bacterium is proving to be quite recalcitrant and capricious. Thank you for your indulgence. I appreciate it. I'd like to invite our speakers to join us up here at the desk. And we invite your questions about these various projects and undertakings you've heard about. If you wouldn't mind coming up to the microphones to ask your question. Uh, and if you are stuck in the middle, raise your hand and I will come and bring you the mic. In case anybody's confused. And uh, please, um, panelists, use the microphones as well. Hi, I had a question for Mr. Stein, you mentioned you did all your social book uh, experiments in a browser. Sorry. Time is not up. We still have half an hour. <laughs> I really apologize for that. Oh, that's all right. I just wanted to ask you, because I really don't like to read in a browser, um, what's your ideal device for a social book? You know, I, I do most of my reading on my iPad. I, from, you know, I, as somebody who came out of the print world, I resisted the internet as a publishing medium for a long, long time, until a few years ago when HTML5 came around and people started making, showing text in the browser that was indistinguishable from iBooks or Kindles. In other words, there's nothing in, in, there's no reason why text can't be as beautiful in a browser as it is anywhere else today. The, there are many reasons why we've gone to the browser, and not the least of which is that um, we live inside of an open web, and for me, apps reproduce one of the few unfortunate things about books, which is that they're all separated from each other. And I'd like to think that we're eventually, you know, all, everything is going to be uh, accessible from everything else. And that's going to happen inside of the browser, not inside of separate book, book apps. Another question? Please don't be shy. Well, I'll pose a question. Oh, by all means, please come up. And while you're coming up, I'll ask my question. Um, Gita, I was wondering if you could say anything about um, initiatives for interactive and iPad books at MIT Press. Um, I'm familiar with one book, Non-Object, and I was curious if you could say something about that and about other potential things on the horizon using that technology. 
Absolutely. Um, thank you for asking that question. That's the number one question our authors have been asking this year, too. Um, everybody wants an iPad app um, for their book. And uh, we have uh, one of our editors, Margie Avery, has worked with an outside developer and with our digital initiatives group to prepare a template for um, app development and for iPad apps for editions of our books. Um, we're also um, hoping to participate in Apple's iBookstore, which will give us the opportunity to migrate um, many, of our, many more of our books into iPad editions, interactive editions. Thanks. Hi, I'm, oh, is this on? Can you hear? Okay. My name is Lisa Grossman. I'm a reporter for New Scientist. Um, this is for a Christian book. Um, so if your DNA poem doesn't work, if the poet doesn't play with you, and the part of the idea was to create you know, some immortal text that's going to last past the heat death of the universe and whatever, uh, if it doesn't work, what, is there anything that you can speculate? You know, can you expand on that? Um, the Unfortunately, I've uh, pushed all the, the chips right onto the table. It, I'm all in. Uh, and there's no, uh, there's no backup plan. No... no. No beta version of it. I'm, my career is over if I don't do it. Uh, I mean, it wouldn't be fun if there was nothing major at stake. Uh, and you know, it, <laughs> uh, I've been asked uh, this question a lot by my friends, uh, who I should note uh, very teasingly are rooting for the microbe. <laughs> well, go microbe! Right? Every failure, they're just so pleased as punch that uh, that uh, life is not uh, behaving. You know, uh, uh, being bent to my will. So, um, uh, I actually have no uh, no uh, plans really to figure out how to uh, reframe the project in such a way that it would uh, be possible for me to publish the book with with the uh, the data from the failure. I mean, I suppose it would be interesting from a conceptual viewpoint to do so. And uh, everybody asks me if I'm prepared to do that, but I'm not. I'm not feeling desperate enough yet to uh, to do just that. Uh, uh, the side effect of which, of course, is that uh, you know my hyperbole uh, in the last ten years has probably resulted in the fact that I can't actually bow out or find an elegant exit. I really have to figure out how to make it work. It's a good question, though. <laughs> Thank you. Next question. If there are sixty-four possible triplets of of uh, bases in DNA and only twenty amino acids, isn't there a loss of information? Uh, I suppose that there's no redundancy in the poem, uh, and it uses only 20 letters. Uh, so there is a lipogrammatic character to the work. Um, the reason I've selected uh, Dinococcus radiodurans as the uh, host for the organism is that it's very effective at repairing its own DNA and retaining uh, information despite the lack of redundancy. Uh, so you know, I'm hoping that, uh, that uh, the constraint itself can be preserved, at least for a viable amount of time. Obviously, in order to get attention and, and grant money, I have to make promises like, you know, it could be a book that would be on the planet Earth when the sun explodes. But obviously, you know, Darwin, Darwin will intervene, I'm sure. John McVeigh, I teach design. Um, to, to an observation and a question. The, the observation is, I must say, just I've really enjoyed having the sign translators here because of the expressive stereo view I'm getting of all the presentations, and particularly for the last presentation, uh, Christians. Uh, I mean, heroic effort by the translator to, to, to make that thing happen. I mean, it was great. 
So, we, I mean, we should just do this all the time for every presentation. Uh, the question for Christian is, how should I think about the reader of your this last Zeno poem? Like, I don't, I don't want to, like, pretend I have an idea about the reader. How, how do you view the reader? Is the reader the the new life form? or how, Where does reading fit in here? Well, uh, I suppose the organism is the first reader of the poem. Uh, I often asked about uh, the perceived readership millions of years from now. I'm actually not, of course, trying to address that kind of readership. Uh, I'm speaking uh, in a conceptual milieu to my own uh, peer group. I'm trying to be a 21st century poet responding, I suppose, to concerns uh, that interest me you know, uh, right now. And it just seems to me that uh, in order to be a 21st century poet, I have to, I have to speak uh, to the socio-technological milieu within which I find myself. Uh, one of the, the things that I find very disappointing about poetry sociologically is that it doesn't respond to what is probably the most important cultural activity we now do as a species. It doesn't re- answer very well uh, to the language of science. And in fact, historically, uh, poetry has regarded science as the most unpoetic of uh, linguistic usages. But I think that, in fact, that's not true anymore. And uh, it, we're, it's incumbent upon us to, to speak, uh, you know, I think, um, viably t- uh, to that whole cultural activity. Well, then let me throw in, you know, there's this notion that the poem creates its own reader or the work of literature kind of creates its own reader. Sure. I mean, do you need, do you, is the part that's missing here, you need to actually create your own reader to read this in a million years? Or? Well, uh the, the work is being published as a book of poetry that has a lot of subsidiary texts surrounding it. I mean, there's a, a tremendous uh, constellation of other works uh, there to support it. And obviously, no work of literature can exist in a vacuum. I mean, this organism may survive for a while, but of course, it, it, if it endures a, as a cultural artifact, it'll be because of a, an enormous uh, infrastructure surrounding it. All of the other poetry, all of the uh, uh, provocateurs and critics who complain about it or, or uh, celebrate it, uh, the uh, milieus like this in which I get to I get to support it and talk about it and boast about it. Uh, the the, the in, in, these activities help me produce a, a certain kind of reader for this practice. Now I'm also an avant-garde poet, an experimental writer whose uh, you know job it is I suppose is to be a bit provocative to treat language as though it were a great uh, research and development activity. You know I, I think of myself as a kind of you know, mad scientist working at Area 51, reverse engineering this tremendously alien organism language, you know, for human purposes, trying to figure out how to make it do things it's not really supposed to do. Uh, and uh, in this case, you know, I'm, I'm, I really am trying to respond uh, to the circumstances in which I find myself to be a 21st century poet. Most poets aren't 21st century poets. You know. Hi. Um, my name is Anna Maria, and this is a question for Mr. Stein. Uh, I'm basically a PhD student that has to read um, a lot of stuff. I'm an architecture historian. <laughs> And I have this huge archive of PDFs, and I basically just read on screen. So I'm really interested in the social book um, project that you presented. And I guess I was trying to think, um, how how soon do you envision that? You have my email in your inbox, but I was trying to <laughs> think, how soon are you envisioning this would come out outside of sort of a, it seems like it's more in a test situation right now. And, and how linked is it to, sort of a social network uh, environment, or would it work individually? It seems like most often the problem is getting to people to sign to the same platform, either um, software or website, to collaborate, right? It, 
It, it's very robust. It really works. We're just keeping it in beta for a long time because there's no reason not to. So I, I have no, there's no hesitancy saying use it. It, it, won't, it won't bite you. But, um, and there's just a, an amazingly long list of features that are, that are coming. Uh, I mean, for example, right now we can't import a PDF. We're getting a grant from a foundation to make it possible to import PDFs, but you can't do it yet. Um, we will make it very soon. You'll be able to sign on with, you know, from Facebook or, or Twitter, uh, but you're not going to be able to. Basically, for the next year or so, it's going to be YouTube for social documents, right? Anybody's going to be able to upload anything they want. If they upload it privately, you can start a group around it, but nobody else will see it. Or you, if, you know, if there's not a rights issue, you can upload it publicly, and anybody can then can start a group around that particular document. And you can read a book. I mean, I, I often just load things. If I see something interesting on the Internet these days, I just automatically pretty much copy it and paste it into social book and mark it up there because I just find it a more interesting place to read and to think than to on the web page itself. Uh, hi, Ethan Henderson. I'm a special collections librarian and archivist. Um, Bob, you just answered actually one of my questions about uploading PDFs. Um, looking forward to having that uh, option available sometime so when uh, colleagues and friends of mine, we can comment on uh, looking at manuscripts and, and marginalia and things like you're that. You're going to be able to draw on the page too, so you're going to be able to you know Fantastic. circle something in the image and and put in and have those graphic marks include uh, notes. Fantastic. Uh, I guess my, my uh, que other question is, right now, since it's beta, you're fine, but uh, what happens when uh, you're wor working with um, online databases that libraries, unfortunately, have to pay thousands of millions of dollars for that are protected? Are you at all, how are you going to work with publishers, or is that um, something that will come later because it's in beta right now, or I'm just curious how that will be that... Right now, online for yourself and your friends is one thing. I'm, I would love to do this with, you know, these journals that we yeah. uh, have to uh, pay subscriptions for. So here, here's the problem. There are a lot of startups in this space, and they're all pretty much failing at exactly the same point, which is they don't have any users. And so they go to the publishers and they say, wow, if we only had your stuff on our platform, we'd actually have users. And the publishers say, well, if you actually had any users, we'd give you our stuff. And nothing happens. We actually, I, I understand publishers' problem. So we actually developed a different model, which is we have a, we have a business model that doesn't require any publisher ever to use the system, which I understand from your perspective is problematic because you want to get all that really good stuff in here. But what we're doing is we are sort of taking a page out of Apple's book, which is when, when Apple started the, uh, the App Store, what they did in effect was they created a marketplace for these tens of thousands of young programmers who could write productivity tools and angry birds but had no place to sell it. And what Apple did was they did this roll-up of intellectual capital, sort of unprecedented proportions. So we're developing a very powerful back office where if you apply to become an editor at Socialbook, we're going to give you access to that back office because we think there are tens of thousands of people around the world who have innovative ideas for publishing but don't have any access to the engines of publishing. 
So we think in that way that we're going to be able to give birth to a whole cohort of sort of editor proto publishers. A lot of the successful ones are going to be, uh, you know, snapped up by existing publishers. But we think in this way, over the course of a couple of years, we're going to be able to definitely have enough stuff to attract enough users that eventually publishers are going to come along. One of the problems here is that you know, the, something like Instagram comes along, and you know, in, for, in one year from zero to being worth a billion dollars in that classic hockey stick, where you know, where unbelievable usage very quickly. What what's happening with Social Book and and other things like it is that we are challenging very very deep behaviors, and it's not going to happen overnight. Okay, we we worked really hard to come up with a with an understanding of how to go forward, which wasn't going to require us to succeed in the first six months, the first year, the first three years. You know, if I'm going up the elevator with somebody who has money, you know, I say much to their dismay. You know, if you give me ten years, I will give you a platform that will eclipse Amazon in importance. But it is going to take that long, at least, to to really shift. The behavior in people's mind, from reading and writing to being something we do by ourselves, to reading and writing being something that we increasingly naturally feel that we do with others. Thank you. Good luck. Um, Kara Lyons, and I'm in the Emerson College uh, Graduate Publishing Program, and I also have a question for Mr. Stein about social book. Um, so, from what you've shown us, it looks as though users can upload specific text to share with either their private groups, be it a class or a group of friends, and then they can also look at the conversations from the community at large. Um, and my concern would be how do you, how does Social Book prevent duplicate texts from being uploaded so that you can actually create this huge conversation with everybody? So, you know, if someone mm -hmm. uploads. Hunger Games Book Three versus Mockingjay. How would you um, prevent that from happening? Actually, the example you chose is easier to answer because if it's copyrighted material like that, there only will you know, it'll be the publisher-approved copy, right? There, we, individuals won't be allowed to put up Hunger Games. Certainly not publicly. If they do it privately, we won't know, but publicly they won't be able to. The question of what happens when 15 different people go to the Internet Archive and get Macbeth and upload it publicly, and some of them call it Macbeth, and some of them call it Shakespeare's Macbeth, and some of, it, some of them call it the Scottish play. Um, we're thinking about it. Right? I mean, it's, it's not rocket science to figure out that we, we actually can compare the, uh, the data and if it's close, if, one, if things are close enough to each other, we can link them. This is one of these problems that we, it's a fantastic question. It's very insightful. We've been thinking about the question, but we, we're also pretty sure that it's one of those problems that we're going to have to solve in practice. We, we hope that we've built uh, you know, a, a data structure and a database that will be able to, that we'll be able to solve it. But we haven't yet because we, we, we don't yet exactly understand the scope of the problem. All I can say on our behalf is we, we, we know it is going to be a problem. And we, we, we hope we're taking you know, the steps necessary to solve it when it eventually. 
Hi, uh, my name is Ariel Baker Gibbs. I graduated college last year and now I'm interning at the MIT Press. Um, I had a question with, I think, both Mr. Stein and Minak Talam about the, the idea of the social book. I'm wondering well, what I'm getting from this is that there are a few different levels that social book can work on. Like one is for a more kind of general public. You know, like like uh, Kieran just said, one huge conversation about a book, or you could have a more kind of exclusive level where you have people who are actually working on the book or having a conversation about a book like the class. But also, I'm wondering if you're thinking about using this as a way to edit. Okay, so are you? So the thing that I got them trying to figure out is, are you? Trying to get ebooks uploaded and getting people to kind of think about them in an editorial kind of way, and then the role of the editor become more of the person that mediates this kind of conversation, and having the readers become the editors. So I I, I would love to ask mm -hmm. uh, to repose that question for Gita because Gita has seen social book since before, when it was an idea. She's seen it at least twice since then. My question to you is, why doesn't every editor, if, for, forget putting it out publicly, why, why, why aren't the, why isn't the, the peer review at, at MIT, the blind you know, peer review being done in social book? It, it should be. That was the first thought I had when I saw it was, <laughs> we, we need this for peer review. We could do open peer review. We could do blind peer review. We could do, and you know, it would be so useful as an internal platform for right, us. No, but, I, but I'm asking, but, but I'm asking yeah. you a very yeah. specific question. Why? Why? What? And this is a real one. It's not not rhetorical. Yep. What are the actual obstacles that has prevented you from doing it? We don't have access to your platform. We, we, of course, we, you do. <laughs> it's in beta. <laughs> Future of the book at Gmail. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Well, we have time for one more question before the break, if anyone else wants to ask. The follow-up? Um, uh, one, this one for you, Mr. Bach. Book? Yes. Okay, cool. Um, I was wondering why you felt that you needed to write a poem out of English word. And we need to change it to uh, biological data. If, if that to, I don't know, create a create something that we can make a connection to. If that, what are you thinking, or is it? Well, I, I, I'm writing a poem in English because I speak to only two languages very badly: uh, English and French. Uh, and it's much more difficult to imagine writing two mutually correlated poems in French. Uh, as I've discovered, um, the English has a rich enough vocabulary uh, to uh, support this particular constraint. Um, now, I've went to a lot of trouble to figure out how to make a poem intelligible, uh, in part to mollify critics uh, who would look at any other kind of work as uh, dismissible. Uh, I mean, there's eight trillion uh, possible lexicons uh, with their own unique and in individual vocabularies, but it's very difficult to, to say two sentences that are mutually intelligible. In fact, it's, it's impossible, I have since discovered. Um, 
and uh, I probably could have written two nonsense poems, but they would have been, I think, dismissed by critics as a waste of time, especially if these poems are intended to endure for a prolonged period of time. Right? If we imagine them you know, persisting for thousands of years, it might be considered a great act of hubris to uh, encipher nonsense of this sort into the two poems. Uh, so I, I did go to a lot of trouble to, to find something intelligible that would speak, in effect, to my own peer group. Right? I am, of course, trying to write poetry for my friends and a few strangers. Um, uh, the, you know, the, the outcome is to try and, and I think, uh, inspire or uh, induce conversation about a, a technology that will eventually be used for other kinds of purposes of this sort to uh, identify genetically engineered organisms uh, so that we'll know who to blame when they go awry or we'll know uh, how to solve problems uh, that the organisms might call, uh, you know, cause, that we'll have a, a user's manual embedded in synthetic organisms. Uh, undoubtedly will use uh, uh, genetic storage as a means of uh, augmenting our current uh, electromagnetic forms of storage because these are very durable uh, over apocal time. Uh, we know of no other way of storing information that can endure for billions of years except uh, genetic uh, information. Uh, we each of us carry around within us uh, original uh, genetic information that uh, is so crucial to all forms of life that it has been preserved by evolution uh, since life first appeared on the planet. Um, and I think there's a kind of ethical commitment to uh, imagining you know, the extinction of our own cultural heritage and attempting to find ways to redress that. As it stands right now, as I mentioned last night, we have only the two Voyager probes and the two Pioneer probes that might persist over uh, apocal time as a testament to our presence as a sentient species on the planet. Thank you very much for your questions. And yes, thank you all for speakers. being so indulgent.